Sask Ag Today is brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Future Ford is your automotive expert. From sales to service, they're the ones you can trust to get you rolling again sooner. Sask Ag Today with Rod McDonald. Good afternoon. It's uh, 17 after 12. 18 after 12 in Manitoba. Ahead today on Sask Ag Today. Well, it's a bad, bad year for grasshoppers. It's got a lot to do with the uh, dry conditions, of course, on the western prairies. I spoke with uh, Saskatchewan Agriculture's insect guy, James Tanzi, about the uh, grasshopper situation. So we'll hear from James on the program today as well. Sasquheat out with its uh, regular weekly wheat market outlook. Marlena Borsch from Mercantile Consulting Venture Incorporated uh, provides that outlook for Sask Wheat. And we'll hear from Marlena coming up on the program today. As well, uh, Crown Land, opportunities to rent Crown Land in the province. We're going to hear from the Executive Director of the Lands Branch at Saskatchewan's Ministry of Agriculture, Grant Zolinko, about uh, available Crown Land for rent. Those stories and a whole lot more coming up on GX on Agriculture today. And welcome back to Saskag Today. I'm Rod McDonald filling in for Doug Falconer. Doug taking vacation here over the next couple of weeks. Ag Review is next. Grasshoppers are having a field day in Saskatchewan, pun intended. Saskatchewan Agriculture Insect and Vertebrate Pest Management Specialist James Tansey says there are significant grasshopper populations around the province. And we do have regions with really heavy grasshopper populations. Uh, but even in those regions, uh, the, uh, the occurrence can be localized. So it isn't, you know, ubiquitous across the board, but we certainly do have some, uh, some pretty significant hotspots. Uh, you know, primarily in southern regions, southwest, uh, central regions have experienced uh, some pressures. And even the northeast has experienced uh, 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 some localized grasshopper pressure as well. The heaviest concentrations of grasshoppers are in the driest areas of the province. But uh, that, that, that again comes with an asterisk because it is actually possible for it to be too dry for grasshopper eggs to survive the winter. Uh, so if a grasshopper egg loses about 30% of its moisture due to very dry conditions, then its, it's success over wintering is going to be low. Uh, but as a rule, yeah, uh, dry conditions, but uh, you know regions with extreme drought that can actually have a damaging effect on grasshoppers. James, I heard a farmer comment that the grasshoppers seem bigger than normal this year. Is that true? Uh, no, <laughs> typically, typically, uh, yeah, we're not going to see a great variance in size. What he's probably referring to is uh, one of our major pest species is called the two-stripe grasshopper. And females of this species can be relatively large. And of course, you know, when animals are moving, they tend to look a little bit bigger than when they're still. So I, I suspect what he's looking at is two-stripe grasshopper females. Tansy explains the damage that grasshoppers can do in a crop. Well, they're chewing feeders, so they they are they have what uh, what's called generalist mouth parts, uh, and uh, and they uh, um, uh, chew on uh, on uh, plant materials. So that is they're they're physically removing the plant materials. Um, they can cause considerable damage to foliage. They can cause damage to the stems of cereal crops, and 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 that can result in in head cutting, or you know loss of uh, of the marketable part part of the plant. They can directly feed on the uh, on the seed of the plant, so that is, you know, cereal heads or, or canola pods in some case. Um, but yeah, uh, most above ground tissues are subject to their feeding, and they are generalist feeders. So, 
Producers will spray for grasshoppers once they reach an economic threshold. Uh, and the threshold is going to vary depending on the crop, of course. Um, so with uh, with most crops, we're looking at densities of about 10 to 12 per square meter, and that's considered the action threshold for that or the economic threshold. What we're trying to do is not get to the economic injury level, and the economic injury level, of course, is that uh, is that uh, that level where the cost of control balances any uh, any benefit of inflicting that control on the population. So, um, for for financial reasons, it makes sense to limit those populations before they get that big. But thresholds vary by crop, as I mentioned. So, with you know, generally uh, generally speaking, for most crops, 10 to 12 per square meter. When we're talking about canola or soybean, those tend to be pretty tolerant of foliar feeding. So in the range of 14 to 15 per square meter, and that comes with an asterisk. So if they're feeding on foliage, uh, if they're munching on pods, then then your tolerance is going to be lower. With uh, some other crops, particularly uh, lentil when it's in flower and early pod, these are particularly sensitive to grasshopper feeding, so, so your tolerance for the, them is, is quite a bit lower. So two per square meter, and uh, in the case of flax, uh, in bowl, uh, because, of, because of the potential for cutting there, it's also two per square meter. Are there any other problem insects that farmers are dealing with, James? Yeah, we've we've had uh, a few reports of diamondback moth and canola crops at uh, at threshold and above threshold damage. These these have been localized, uh, quite localized, happily. Uh, we've had a few reports of P. aphid uh, in some uh, in some um, uh, legume crops, uh, primarily lentils and. Um, uh, some reports of uh, of uh, true armyworm and cereal crops, sometimes at very large numbers. Uh, the true armyworms uh, have been occurring again in very large numbers, but their their development is is concluding. Uh, so happily, the damage associated with those should be waning. So you know the the, the occurrence of large numbers of pupae might be seen in uh, in uh, in the soil in some fields, but that damage should be on the on on the on the downward uh, downward slide. So, and one final thing, Tansy says next year might already be setting up as a bad year for grasshoppers. We're looking at a summer this year that's similar to what we had last year. That is very warm, very dry uh, during the period of, uh, of egg laying for, uh, for the pest species of grasshoppers. And um, they overwinter as eggs. Uh, and if this continues, you know, without an early frost or a cool wet year next year, we're like, likely looking forward to continued grasshopper pressure for next year. Saskatchewan Agriculture Insect and Vertebrate Pest Management Specialist, James Tansey. It's 12.30 now, 1.30 in Manitoba, and it is time for AgReview. It's brought to you by New Era Ag Technologies in Swan River. GX94, AgReview. Grain movement at Canada's west coast ports wasn't seriously impacted by the B.C. port workers' strike last month, but the next few months might be a different story. That from Mark Hemmis, president of Quorum Corporation, the group that tracks grain movement in the country. He says the volume of grain that's been moving recently has been very good, but there's a good chance that issues will arise in the coming months. Hemmis says with the prairie harvest starting to ramp up, grain movement to BC ports will pick up just as they'll be trying to clear up the backlog of goods created by the strike. Hemis says it's going to take a couple of months to clean up the backlog and it will likely have a bit of a backlash on grain movement. 
Alberta agriculture expects crop yields in Alberta this year will be down about 15% from the five-year average. For spring wheat, the average dry land yield estimate for this year is 38.9 bushels per acre, down from the five-year average of just over 46. Barley yields are expected to be just under 55 bushels an acre, down about five bushels from the five-year average. For canola, Alberta agriculture estimates farmers will get just over 32 bushels an acre, down from the five-year average of 37.6. And dry peas in Alberta expected to yield 34.5 bushels an acre. The five-year average is 38.3. The Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association hosting two more town hall meetings this week in drought-stricken areas of the province. One of the meetings goes this afternoon in Capri, the other coming up tomorrow in Cadillac. In addition to district representatives from the Saskatchewan Cattlemen's Association, regional livestock specialists and staff from Saskatchewan Crop Insurance are expected to attend the meetings. Current support programs for producers, feedback on those programs from producers, and testimony on what they're facing are expected to drive the meetings. Previously, two meetings were held in Purdue and Kindersley, and both were well attended. U.S. corn condition fell for the first time in several weeks last week as intense heat baked much of the country. According to the USDA's weekly crop progress report, 55% of corn was rated good to excellent, down two percentage points from the previous week. The condition of the U.S. soybean crop also suffered in the heat. Soybeans were rated 52% good to excellent, down two percentage points from last week. USDA reports 80% of the winter wheat crop has been harvested, down about three percentage points from the five-year average. The spring wheat harvest in the U.S. is just getting started. USDA says harvest kicked off last week with 2% of the nation's crop harvested as of Sunday. That's just slightly behind 3% last year and 5% for the five-year average. USDA says 42% of the spring wheat crop was rated good to excellent, down 7 percentage points from last week. The federal and Manitoba governments are providing over $1.9 million in funding for 54 projects supporting sustainable farming in Manitoba. Federal Agriculture Minister Lawrence McCauley says Manitoba farmers are prepared to embrace new proactive on-farm projects that help mitigate the effects of climate change. There are two streams of funding that support on-farm management practices and projects that sequester carbon and improve sustainability. And the federal and Manitoba governments announcing funding for initiatives to support indigenous participation in the ag and agri-food economy. Agriculture Minister McCauley says ensuring indigenous communities and organizations are equipped with the agricultural knowledge, skills, and technology to increase their participation in the agricultural economy is crucial. Manitoba Agriculture Minister Derek Johnson says the government is addressing barriers to indigenous participation in the agriculture and agri-food sector. Two streams of funding have been developed to support equitable access to funding and strengthen relationships with indigenous communities. And just one more thing, Food Day Canada is coming up this weekend. 
To tell us about it, this is Carly Rumpel, Public Trust Specialist with the Government of Saskatchewan. Shine a light on Canadian cuisine. Saskatchewan is proud to join other provinces across the nation to proclaim August 5, 2023, Food Day Canada. This event is a chance for all Canadians to join hands in one massive celebration in praise of our farmers and fishers, our chefs and researchers, and above all, our home cooks. Canada is food. You can get involved in the celebration by trying a new recipe, dining at your favorite local restaurant, or sharing your Canadian food stories and pictures by using hashtag FoodDayCanada. Take the pledge that you support Canadian food and learn more at www.fooddaycanada.ca. Again, that's Carly Rumpel. She's Public Trust Specialist with the Government of Saskatchewan. Food Day Canada is coming up this Saturday, August the 5th. And that is today's Ag Review. It's 12.36 now, 1.36 in Manitoba. We'll check on today's closing livestock futures coming up next. There were several cattle producers with live animal displays at Ag in Motion recently. They were promoting their specific breeds, and it gave the general public an opportunity to view some of the smaller breeds like shorthorn, shorthorns. Barry Lehman brought some shorthorns from Sask Valley Stock Farms near Rosthern. Well, we're here to promote the beef industry in, in whole, and I guess for us personally, it's it's the shorthorn and also the fact that that we're testing in for individual feed intake in our in our animals, and so we want to promote that as well. Lehman listed the strength of the shorthorn breed. Well, we're here to promote the beef industry in, in whole, and I guess for us. Per- yeah, I, I want to I want to stress that that we're all in the beef industry and that all breeds have positives and negatives in, t- in, in their characteristics. The strengths of the shorthorn breed are definitely docility and mothering ability. Lehman says it's difficult to hear that some beef producers are struggling right now. Yeah, like anything in agriculture, we are so weather dependent that yeah, you, you can't, you, you don't have control over that. So yeah, it can be a fickle business, but I guess you, you kind of have to work on long-term averages that if you can make a profit long-term, then you're, yeah. you got just be able to be able to financially withstand the bad times. Layman says beef prices are holding their own right now. Oh yeah, overall, I mean, if you look at the, the price we are getting for the product that we produce hist- compared to historically, we're doing very, very well. But unfortunately, gross income is only half of your profit, yeah. your profit. and uh, the income, uh, the inputs. Um, that we have to to purchase in order to produce our product, um, they have increased substantially as well. So, I mean, profitability-wise, are we any better off than we were 10 years ago? Maybe, maybe not. In fact, you might say that because of the, the amount of money that we're spending on inputs, we're actually taking more risk. Lehman talked about what his biggest expenses are right now. Well, for the beef producer, for the cow-calf guy, I mean, it's a, it always has been and always will be that feed is our number one input cost, both both winter feed supply and summer grazing. And that's why I'm here promoting feed efficiency. I, I mean, we are individually testing or testing individual animals for intake. And, uh, and there's very, very few people in Canada doing that right now. Layman. Lehman admits he hasn't seen any significant improvements in feed efficiency just yet. 
Well, I haven't seen very many because we've only been doing it for a few years. I mean, researchers have been using this equipment for 25 years. So to them, this is old hat. But to the average beef producer like I was, let's say six years ago, I didn't even know that this was possible to be done. And so I'm finding a lot of commercial cow-calf breeders don't even know that you can test for individual feed intake. And from all the research that I have read, the research papers that I have read, and uh, the, the seminars that I've attended and watched and what have you, I think making a, an improvement uh, of 10% is very, very achievable. And 10% of your feed costs every year is a huge, huge, it would make a huge difference to your bottom line. Layman says there's research out there on improving feed efficiency. I think as producers, I mean, I guess I can't speak for everybody else, but I know myself, um, I need to get off my farm more often. I'm, I'm, we're all good at producing, but we need to get off our farms in order to learn from other people that are doing things differently. And, uh, and uh, that's one, the one area that I'm sorely, I have to admit, I, I haven't done that as much as I should have. That's Barry Lehman. He's with Sask Valley Stock Farms near Rosthern. And he had some shorthorns on display in the BMO Livestock Central area at the recent Ag in Motion. Well, it's 20 before 1 now, before 2 in Manitoba, and we'll check on those closing uh, livestock prices coming right up after this. Livestock market conditions. Cattle futures were up at the close today. October live cattle, 181.82, up 230. December live cattle closed today at 185.62, up 222. September feeder cattle 251.90 up to 70 today and October feeder cattle 253.40 up to 37. Lean hog futures were down at the close October 85.65 down 35 cents and December lean hogs closed today at 77.25 down 5 cents. And those are today's closing U.S. livestock futures. We'll check the closing grain prices coming up in about uh, 8 or 9 minutes from now at 10 to 1, 10 to 2 in Manitoba. You're listening to Saskag Today. Quick break and we're right back after this. Future Ford has been serving the Melville area for over 30 years. They focus on the future. Their staff are ready for what's to come. Ford Tech is changing all the time with new vehicle technology like EV, self-driving, and more. Get ready to drive into the future. Why? Because the future is Future Ford. Welcome back to Sask Ag Today. I'm Rod McDonald filling in for Doug Falconer over the next couple of weeks. And we're certainly right smack dab in the middle of another a heat wave here up to 31 this afternoon might even get a little warmer over the coming days about 31 again tomorrow and perhaps even 32 degrees on thursday before it starts to cool down a little bit at the end of the week we'll have all the complete weather details coming up at one o'clock two o'clock in manitoba much research has been done and systems developed to address weeds especially weed seeds coming out the back of a combine during harvest Brianne Tideman is a weed specialist or scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Research and Development Centre located in Lacombe, Alberta. She lists different kinds of technology that are out there that prevent weed seeds from developing in fields. 
so we've got chaff carts, which of course is a, an older Canadian technology um, uh, that was primarily used for, for feed sources, but we're, we're realizing there's some benefits in, in terms of weed management as well. By, by collecting the chaff, you're also collecting the weed seeds. Um, and if you're feeding them to animals, particularly sheep are quite good at it, they can digest some of those weed seeds and then, then they're non-viable. Um, so that's one that's kind of been around, but sort of with a bit of a new focus. Uh, we're seeing a little bit of chaff lining or, or chaff tram lining interest where you, you focus uh, the chaff into a line behind the combine and then you get a bit of decomposition or, or just sort of a bit of a reduced emergence and, and you're not spreading it across the field to compete across the entire field. Um, and then the big one that we've focused a lot on Sorry, the big one that we focused a lot on would be sort of the impact mill technology. So a lot of people recognize sort of the name, the Harrington Seed Destructor. Um, that was the original version. That's now no longer the big toe behind beast that everyone saw pictures of, you know, in the last 10 years. Uh, now these impact mill units are built into the back of the combines. And we've got a few brands on the market. There's the IHSD, which is the integrated version of the Harrington Seed Destructor, sort of that original uh, from Australia. We've got the Seed Terminators also from Australia, but there's um, a number of those running in the prairies right now now on, on producer farms. Uh, and then we've got the Redicop seed control unit, which is produced out of Saskatoon. Uh, it's the only North American version of the impact mills at this point on the market. Um, and we've got a number of those running in the prairies as well. So at this point, we've got between 20 and 30 impact mills running on producer farms in, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, primarily Saskatchewan at this point. Tideman says impact mills do a good job of reducing weed seed viability close to zero. What actually goes into the mills, we're seeing typically better than 95% control of what, what goes in. 95% of those seeds are destroyed. Um, and in a lot of cases, it's really more than 97%. I like to be a little conservative, just being me, uh, a little cautious. Um, so the big trick is getting it into the combine. So one of the big things that is sort of a characteristic for harvest weed seed control is those weeds need to retain their seeds until the time of harvest. Um, so I give an ex example, you know, volunteer canola, we're breeding it to hold its seed till the time of harvest. That's what we want from the crop. We get it in the weed too. It's great. All those seeds are primarily still there. Wild oat is a good example of one that tends to drop its seeds a little bit uh, earlier, um, which a lot of people are really concerned about. But even when you've got weeds that are dropping their seeds, there's usually a few still left. And if it's a resistant weed species, what we're doing is spreading those weeds across the field. So that instead of keeping a resistant patch, a patch that we can then do a patch management strategy on, now we're making it a field management strategy if we're spreading it with the combine. So even though you might not drive sort of densities down with some of those lower seed retention, I still think there's impacts in terms of, of what management strategies we can use to manage some of those resistant weeds, just in terms of keeping it a patch. Tideman says she's surveying farmers who've adopted the use of impact mills in their operation. We've done a study in the field. It was only a three-year study. Um, we're limited by logistics and by financials and, and how long we can get funding for and all those fun things in terms of research. Um, but we do have producers that have been running mills on their farms since about 2018. So we're at that sort of five-year point. Um, and I'm in the process of surveying some of those early adopters to really try and find out what are you seeing on your farm? Are you seeing reductions in your weed numbers? Are you seeing you know much more uh, ability to do those patch management strategies? Have you been able to reduce your herbicide? So I'm trying to pull that information out of the producers that have actually been using them longer term because uh, it's a little easier for them to use it long term than it is for me in a research situation so kind of taking that tactic right now and trying to learn from them trying to learn what they're seeing on their farms in in reality and not just plot scale or, or research scale as weeds become more herbicide resistant Tideman says farmers will more likely be looking to other means of technology in the ongoing battle against them 
I think so. I think we're not going to have an option but to look for, for all sorts of things that we can do. Um, th there's a lot of us that say you're not going to spray your way to herbicide resistance. So even if you get a new molecule, everyone's going to switch to it. We're going to select for resistance again, and we're right back in the same situation. So really looking at diversity is, is going to be key moving forward. And I think this is, I think, one that, that can fairly efficiently be incorporated into a system. So the, the upfront cost is absolutely an issue. Um, and I do talk to guys about, you know, you, you don't have to outfit every combine in your fleet. If you run four combines, put it on one. And that combine is the one that does your opening rounds and does your weed patches. It, it doesn't have to be on every single combine and you just have to use that combine strategically. But I mean, it's something that in a sense is a little bit non-selective of, of whatever weed seeds go in your combine, it will work on them. Um, so in that sense, you're, you're getting sort of good bang for your buck across your spectrum of weed seeds, aside from whatever's dropped its seeds, which we talked about already. Um, but it's not a silver bullet. It's not a solution. We'll see weeds adapt to this technology as well. But having then a system where you've got herbicides and cultural controls and, and harvest weed seed control and, and multiple different things, each one can capture what the other one is missing. So I think that redundancy, even though it makes it complicated, I think that redundancy is going to be key to success moving forward. Brianne Tideman is a weed scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada's Research and Development Centre in Lacombe, Alberta. Well, it's coming up on 1249 now, 149 in Manitoba. Commodities Update. Now, here are today's closing grain prices. November canola was down at the close, 779.10 a metric ton, down 490 from yesterday's close. January canola, 783.90, down 380. September Minneapolis wheat, 854 and three quarters a bushel, down one cent. September Kansas City wheat closed at 804 and a half, down eight and a quarter. September Chicago wheat, 652 and a quarter, down 13 and a half cents. September corn, 497 a bushel, down 7 cents. September soybeans, 1386 and three quarters, up 16 and a quarter. And September oats was down at the close today at 435 and a half a bushel, down three quarters of a cent. And that's your commodities update very challenging. And as a consequence, futures markets are extremely volatile, but they are also thin. There have been very few significant wheat purchases of late, of cash wheat, I should say, and it seems that buyers are holding off, afraid to make mistakes in this environment. Cash markets in neither Europe nor the US fully followed the futures gains, and the weak or cheap basis is a common theme here. Borsch says the wheat futures market remained volatile this past week. In terms of cash trades last week, there's still very few significant purchases to note. Taiwan bought 108,000 tons of various types of U.S. wheat for fall shipment. And Bangladesh is ten tendering for 50,000 tons of milling wheat. And the tender closes tomorrow on August 1st. U.S. export sales remain weak and they're down cumulatively by 32% against last season and against the USDA's projected 4.5% decline. Borsch notes Saskatchewan Agriculture reported last week that topsoil moisture conditions continued to decline, 
to just 15% adequate now, 48% short, and 37% very short. And according to SaskAg on Thursday, spring wheat ratings fell another 15 points in Saskatchewan to 35% good excellent, 41% fair, and 24% poor to very poor. In Alberta, spring wheat ratings fell another one point over the past two weeks to 45.3% good to excellent. So it's a little bit better there. And U.S. spring wheat ratings by NAS as of July 23rd showed uh, spring wheat at 49% good to excellent, 35% fair, and 16% poor to very poor. The good to excellent rating fell by two points from last week and is 19 points lower than last year's 68% good to excellent rating. However, following the trip, the North Dakota wheat crop tour reported better than average yields. Spring wheat in Russia is experiencing heat and dryness, um, which has been persisting for a while. Borsch says Canadian wheat exports in Green Week 51 were 250,000 tons for an annual total of 19.2 million tons. Moving on to Durham, we did a significant drive across the three prairie provinces over the previous two weekends. And the common theme was huge variability in crop conditions that we saw even within small areas depending on where the showers happen to land. But in the southern areas, in Saskatchewan, Alberta, um, soils were generally depleted and crops looked poorly, even where the crops enjoyed a good start in the spring. There was little left in the soils to sustain them, and when you duck down, there's very little moisture. Since then, it has been warm, and precipitation has remained local, with no widespread sustained rains. So SaskAg came out with new crop ratings on Thursday, showing that Durham ratings fell another 10 points since June 10, to 16% good to excellent, 34% fair, and 51% poor to very poor, as of July 24th. Borsch says there have been some private estimates suggesting Durham yields will be down close to 25% from the five-year average. And that would work out to around 26 bushel per acre. We think it's perhaps a bit early to make this judgment and tend to think the number could still be low if we get some rains. For what it's worth, Agriculture and Agri-Food was using a yield of 35.3 bushel per acre on July 21st in the last publication. Regarding prices, we think of particular note is the high Durham milling wheat spread in some areas of Europe, up to 140 bucks a ton. And on the price as well, the premium of Durham to spring wheat in the cash bits has risen to about 220 a bushel or $81 a ton. With some private estimates taking the Durham crop to below 4 million tons for the year, the question is if this spread can widen more or it will narrow from here on in. So average yields in Canada and the U.S. will have to be watched with that respect. Durham exports in week 51 were just 43,000 tons for a season total of 5 million tons of exports. That's about double what we had last year. 
Borch says the struggling Canadian Durham crop and expectations for higher prices will make producers reluctant sellers. In closing out this week's Sask Wheat Market Outlook, Borch says global factors such as wars and disputes and strange weather conditions have left wheat markets in disarray. And this is making price forecasts very challenging. And we note that while futures were extremely volatile, they are also very thinly traded. Meanwhile, there's a heightened sense of awareness in the market regarding the risks to Russian and Ukrainian exports. And there's also cognizance that harvest has arrived in Europe and is bringing grain in. With grain to be distributed, the market cannot stay paralyzed for a very long time. What is surprising to us is that buyers have been absent when black sea wheat is still quite cheap and when there's a lot of uncertainty regarding forward logistics. We worry that financial problems are affecting overall demand and this might render higher priced North American wheat harder to place. However, as far as Canada is concerned, we don't suggest any cash sales or any additional cash sales while current weather, weather conditions prevail. Again, that's Marlena Borsch with Mercantile Consulting Venture, Inc. She provides the weekly wheat market outlook for Sask Wheat. The entire report is available on the Sask Wheat website. And that's all the time today for Sask Ag Today. Join us again tomorrow. We'll close out the program with our precision weather forecast for the Quill Lakes, Hudson Bay, Swan River, Broadview, Mooseman, Indian Head, Yorkton, Melville, Roblin, and Russell regions. Partly to mostly sunny this afternoon, wind north-northwest 10 to 20, and continuing hot, high today 31. Clear tonight, wind light, overnight low 13. Sunny tomorrow, northwest wind 15 to 25. Daytime high again near 31. Overnight low 14 and continuing sunny and hot Thursday. East southeast wind 10 to 20 up to 32 degrees. Friday partly sunny high 29 then heading into the weekend partly sunny on Saturday a touch cooler high on Saturday near 27 degrees. It's 27 right now in Swan River along with Roblin, Saskatoon, Broadview and Mooseman. 25 this hour for the Paw Dauphin and Hudson Bay, 24 in Brandon, Shoal Lake and Russell, Saskatoon again 27, Regina 30 degrees, Indian Head, Winyard, Wadena, Kelvington reporting 29, Yorkton, Melville, sunshine, the wind is east-northeast at 15, relative humidity 40 percent, our current temperature 29 degrees. That's our time for today. Join me again tomorrow afternoon at 12.15, in Manitoba for Sask Ag Today. I'm Rod McDonald. It's time now for GX94's news and sports headlines. Thank you, Rod. And your GX94 bullpen. No announcements to announce for today, but if you do have cattle to sell, you can contact our GX94 sales department at 306-782-2256 and tell the entire listening area about your next sale. Sask Egg Today has been brought to you by Future Ford in Melville. Future Ford is your automotive expert. From sales to service, they're the ones you can trust to get you rolling again sooner.